This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. Tonight's passage is Genesis chapter 1. Get ready, it's the whole chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth 
and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw saw all that he made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Sorry. (laughs) Thank you be to God. (laughs) I planned that uh, just so y'all would wake up. Seriously, though, I want to take a minute tonight. We're going to be obviously talking about Genesis 1, one of my favorite uh, passages in all of the Bible. Um, And we're going to be talking about it in maybe a different way than you're used to hearing about it, or it might be a little bit uncomfortable uh, for some, but I think is is really, really important. But before we get going on this... um, I think it's important to say tonight I'm going to be talking about wholeness and shalom and this idea of living a life that has balance and unity. And, um, and I'm preaching as somebody who lives perhaps one of the most, un- the most fragmented lives uh, perhaps in this room. I feel in this very moment and in my life rhythm like I exist amidst sheer chaos. My... Um, as a parent trying to raise uh, young children and find a place of solace and make a living and uh, pastor a community. And uh, I can find myself running to and from uh, getting more and more stretched and unbalanced and trying to keep up pace with the chaos of life that I'm sure many of you can relate to. Um, So I don't preach this message as... Uh, a directive from somebody who has it figured out and balanced to a community that needs to catch up, but uh, as somebody who struggles to find balance and rhythm and wants to call a community of, uh, of people who profess the same faith as I do uh, together to a joint effort in, in uh, obtaining a life of balance and wholeness that I think Uh, the scripture proclaims and is a profound call for us to enter into. So that's the spirit in which I'm delivering this message. As somebody who's tired, somebody who has uh, faults and fragments, and is inviting a community into learning a a way of life and a rhythm and and messing up and trying over again um, uh, to pursue balance and wholeness together and individually. Um, And we're going to use Genesis 1 to talk about that balance and wholeness. Last week, I mentioned that uh, the next two weeks, so we're going through the Apostles' Creed. Last week was we believe in God, the Father Almighty, and this week is creator of heaven and earth. And that the nature of those two those two themes, the the content of those, it has the ability to evoke emotion in people. Last week, for people who struggle with their relationship with their fathers or male figures, uh, that's a challenging topic to engage this idea of God as father. And this week, um, talking about creation, um, 
Socially, uh, this uh, war between uh, a creative mentality and more an atheistic, like we evolved out of nothing uh, and for no reason, uh, that lies at the center of the cultural milieu that we exist in. And for some of us personally, uh, Genesis 1 evokes some emotions because we were raised uh, in a context that uses this passage as uh, a tool of war against opposing ideologies about how the origins of the universe came about. Tonight, I want to challenge us and encourage us to enter into the story of Genesis and Genesis 1 and open our minds and our eyes to new, a new way of looking at this passage that I believe captures the heart of what uh, this passage is ultimately getting at. You know, um, I grew up in the evangelical church that has a super, that we tout a super high view of scripture. How many in this room grew up in a tradition with a very high view of scripture? Scripture is the ultimate authority of God, and, and we need to treat it with that respect. Well, Consequently, um, in the tradition that I grew up in, and I know many in this room have the same uh, experience, we almost have this view of Scripture that God communicates to some, or he communicated to this collection of individuals who didn't, were not accessing their minds or were in a mindless state. And that humanity just became the the avenue in which pen could go to paper and God could communicate exactly verbatim the words that he wanted to communicate through mindless humans as they write down the words of God. And I don't say this cheeky. I say it in almost like in a very literal sense. The perspective that I grew up with in the Bible is almost like somebody dazing off into the side, like in a trance, and just writing down empty words that are meaningless to them, but are God's message on paper. The consequence of that perspective on the scripture is I interpret, or I approach the scripture oftentimes in the same way. I am reading these words that I'm trying to interpret the mystery, and and I'm just, I'm reading words on a paper, and oftentimes these words are rendered meaningless to me, and yet I'm overwhelmed by this guilt that I'm somehow supposed to be putting all this together on why the seven days of creation, as they're spelled out, are supposed to be jam-packed with meaning, and yet I feel like that guy just sitting behind a desk going like, uh, it's just words. Am I the only one or has anybody shared in that experience with approaching scripture where it's a real struggle? And I think it has to do with the fact that in large part with how we are trained to approach the scripture. It is our job to figure out exactly how to decode this word of God that sometimes is confusing and seems strange and weird. And if we can't, then we just sit back in this shame space and we're like, I'm useless or I've failed in this process 
of understanding scripture, so I'm going to push it to the side, and I'm not going to engage in it. Now I want us to look at the the life of Jesus. How did Jesus' life and mystery, how did Jesus... How did Jesus call people together in his life and ministry? What is the number one way in which Jesus uh, spoke or taught people? What's that? Parables, right? Jesus would speak in these culturally relevant ways that connected to an experience or a, a very specific social context or political context that his audience would have grabbed onto. And yet nine times out of 10, it left his closest friends scratching their heads in wonder of like, they would grab on to something that Jesus was saying, but it always left them aching for more. Or they'd always ask the questions, yeah, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And he would say like, the kingdom of God is like blah, blah, blah. And he'd, he'd almost mess with them with this imagery and these metaphors and these parables. And it drew people in closer and it captivated them. And they were forced to enter into his story that he was creating. And they were captivated by imagery that meant something to their social context. If Jesus taught in that way, what makes us think that the rest of the scripture, Jesus was unique, the rest of the scripture is back to this whole like, okay, the creation story is the most boring story of all time. God created this, then he created that. He said it was good. Moving on, he created this, he created that. I think that there's more to the creation story that we have the opportunity to enter into. Now, if you want to talk, I told my wife, I promised my wife I would not go into this because you probably know by now, like, I love history and I go on these long tangents of, like, historical things that's interesting to me and maybe, like, one other person. She's like, don't do that. Um, But there is a long delineation of, like, really poignant historical in American culture, American, there's reason why we have used this passage, Genesis 1 and 2, as warfare in our culture. It's 100 years old. It has to do with a war between liberal Christianity and conservative Christianity, and this is our ammunition to demolish the other side. Tonight, I want to have us put down our swords a little bit to enter into this text, to see what power can be had or lies in the midst of this text. And if this is a struggle with you, let's have conversation afterwards. Let's engage in the complexity of all of this and and how this might arouse emotions uh, within you. In order to dive into this text, I want to give an overview of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is the second largest book in all the Bible. It's actually larger than the book of Psalms by word count. It is only next to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the only book that is longer. Um, It's one of my favorites. It's divided into 50 chapters. It's a massive book. And if you read Genesis in one sitting, or if you even in two, if you broke it up, you would find in Genesis, there is a very stark 
pivot point in the book of Genesis, and that comes in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 1 through 11 can be summarized in this. Massive event number one. God creates the heavens and the earth. Whoosh! And he creates humanity, and he says, fill the earth, multiply, take care of it. And then immediately what happens? Humanity falls. They have a consequence. They're kicked out of the garden. They have children. First act of their children, their children murder. One child murders the other child. Very happy start to the book of Genesis. Then in Gen- that takes us all the way through chapter 4. Then in chapter 5, it's a genealogy. It's the author's way of saying, then a thousand years pass, or like a very long period of time passes. Now all of a sudden we have a filled earth with people. But what kind of people are full of the earth? They're corrupt people. They're people who have lost their way. They're people who have deviated. And so in chapter 5, we get the story of Noah. And Noah takes us from 5 through chapter 9. It's God starting over with creation, right? He starts over in the whole process. And then Noah's first act after he gets off the ark is not a very nice one. He does, he's not a very, he gets drunk and other things happen. It's not okay. His children spread out. And then the very next scene is we have new humanity gathering around the Tower of Babel, making their way, growing to the the heavens, building a tower that goes to the heavens, and God confuses their language. Then in chapter 12, we have God intervening, and he is approaching a man by the name of Abram. And he says, Abram, I'm going to ask you to leave your home country to this country I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to bless you for generations, and all the people in the earth are going to be blessed through you. He makes this covenant with Abraham. Then from chapter 12 all the way through chapter 50, it's the story of Abraham, his son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, who is renamed to Israel, and his great-grandchildren, the 12 tribes of Israel. We have Humanity is created, they fall. Humanity is corrupt, they fall. Humanity corrupts themselves, they're scattered. God intervenes and he comes in and he selects one person by the name of Abram and he says, through you, I am going to sow wholeness. I'm going to make a covenant that is going to bring the whole earth together in one form because I am a God of relationship and I will enter in through Abraham through this covenant and humanity and the world is going to be restored through this covenant that I make through Abram. It is abundantly obvious that Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is the precursor. It is the introduction through the main thesis of Genesis chapter 12 through 50. And if we don't treat it with that respect, we kind of, we miss the the overarching flow of what is trying to be communicated through this creation story. Now, that's how Genesis is, is constructed. The, what also is actually really interesting about the book of Genesis is it's obviously a hindsight reflection of, it's the beginning of the Torah, which it continues on and goes through the story of Moses, 
and then and on through Israel wandering in the wilderness. Um, most scholars believe that Genesis and, and the Torah was written during the time of Babylonian captivity. It's a time in which Israel was in one of their darkest hours of their existence. They were enslaved by the world's power, Babylon. They didn't have much hope of what their future would entail. And they were immersed or covered or caught up in the traditions and the, the, the idea of the cosmos that, of the people that they were enslaved to, the Babylonians. Now, during that time, Babylon had a creation story of their own. And it was called the Enuma Elish. Has anybody heard of the Enuma Elish? Enuma Elish is one of the oldest creation stories that we have. And it, uh, it was very well known. It circulated. Everybody in Babylon knew it. All of Israel would have, would have known it. It's divided up into seven tablets that detail out the order of creation. Now, Lisa Sharon Harper, a brilliant African-American scholar and writer, um, she, in this book, A Very Good Gospel, I think she provides one of the most helpful summaries. Mind you, this is a seven-tablet document that is this very grotesque war scene um, that describes how the universe came together. But I want to read her summary of how this creation story goes. In the beginning, two divine beings ruled. Apsu, which meant fresh waters, or he was over the fresh waters, and his wife, Tiamat, salty waters. The two swirled together and the waters become one. Chaos, formlessness, void. And within their waters, demons and monsters and gods were birthed. Violence, death, and chaos ruled the surging waters as Apsu and Tiamat's progeny warred against one another. Apsu and Tiamat plotted to kill their children so that, the peace might be, so that peace might be restored. But their great-grandson, Ea, rose up and killed Apsu. Spitting rage and vengeance, Tiamat created 11 monsters to help her win the battle against her descendants. Tiamat's new lover, the god Kingu, led her army and her progeny were terrified. Then Ea's son, the storm god Marduk, rose up and promised to defeat her in one condition. If he, if he prevailed, he would reign supreme. He won. In his first act of supremacy, Marduk split Tiamat in two. Her ribs became the dome of the sky and the soil of the earth. Her pierced eyes became the source of the Tigris and the Euphrates River, and her tail became the Milky Way. Then Marduk took the blood of Kingu, mixed it with the red clay of the earth, and humankind was birthed to serve the gods forever. This scene of the Babylonian creation story is this cosmic battle of these gods who are killing their own family their children, their own. They're dividing their, their carcasses and they're throwing them up here to create the heavens and the earth. And all of life is the byproduct 
of a cosmic war between angry gods. And humanity's role in that cosmic, in that cosmic war is to appease the gods and to make sure that they land on the right side of the gods, because if they don't, they'll be caught up in the midst of that cosmic war, and there would be dire consequences to pay as a result. I believe in this brilliant act of creativity, and mind you, I am by no means the only who believes this. This is a... This is the most uh, prominent now um, perspective on the, the essence of Genesis 1 and 2. Babel or Israel amidst captivity to this world power in their darkest hour, circulating with the world of like, this is how the world works. The world works based off of War and chaos, and it's the mighty and the victorious and those who appease the right gods who win. And that is how the world functions. And the prophets of Israel, the writers of Israel, says, hold up. Everybody, sit down for a second. Let me tell you the story of creator God of the universe. This world is not the byproduct of cosmic war that is constantly pulling apart and divided and conquering. No, this world is meant to operate in unity and wholeness and is the byproduct of a God of relationship, a singular God of relationship, who draws this whole thing together in one working unit. Do you remember when, uh, I'm stealing this from a professor of mine. Do you remember um, when, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, Notorious B.I.G. died. Remember when Notorious did? Yeah, no? Nobody's like, okay. I grew up near L.A. So uh, um, when Biggie Smalls was killed in L.A., it was a big deal, right? Um, at that time, Sting wrote, a, the police Sting, he wrote a really, like, weird and, like, uncomfortable song. Do you remember the song, I'll Be Watching You, right? It's a love song that is a stalker song, right? It's every move you make, every breath you take. And he wrote it right after he got a divorce. His wife left him, and he writes this really creepy love song, and it became one of the most known songs on, I mean, it was top of the billboard charts. Everybody knew the song. It evoked a certain emotion within you that was ugly and dirty, and yet it was filled with this odd, like, love and bleh. It had power in the music. When Biggie dies, Puff Daddy, now P. Diddy, and Biggie's wife, Faith Evans, they wrote a song together to, to be sung at the memorial of Biggie's funeral. And do you remember that song? It says, it's not, I'll be watching you, it's, I'll be missing 
you. But it uses the exact same rhythm and the exact same tone, the exact same melody. In fact, Sting sang it with them at the MTV uh, award thingamajigger. Um, and they take the rhythm and they take the song and they're grabbing onto the emotion, the dirtiness, the darkness, the ugliness of I'll be watching you. And they flip the script on it and said, you're gone and I'm going to be missing you. It's a different story utilizing the old tone that everything. People do this. This is a sign of artistic creativity. The great prophet of my time was Weird Al Yankovic, right? <laughs> Amish Paradise? I mean, you don't know what Amish Paradise, the song Amish Paradise, you can't pick up on the humor of that song. It's the weirdest song of all time if you haven't first heard Gangster's Paradise. It's clearly a play on, it's a comedic play on something that is socially understood. This passage is taking the common ways in which the, the people of this time viewed the world. They pick up on the melody and the tone of that, and they take it, and they completely tell a different story with it. That is artistic power and creativity that draws you into a story. And to me... It's a travesty in a lot of our traditions that that becomes danger zone. Don't go there. You can't interpret it that way because this way is a lot safer. Guys, we have to recapture the power and the creativity of the scripture because they are an artistic gift to us. And that's one of my biggest passions in our community is allowing, is creating the space for the scripture to come back alive in our community. It is a travesty that it is dead because it is not dead. It is so alive. In this passage, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, rewrites the story of a God who creates the cosmos out of his love and his relationship with it. One of the biggest fears in the, anxious world, in the ancient world was the fear of sea creatures and sea monsters. People didn't like to go in the sea. It was a symbol of death. And you go into the sea and you engage these sea creatures and they are something to be feared. And in this creation story, it's the good God of unity that forms it out of his creative imagination, and he looks at it and he says, what? That's good. That's not something to be feared. That's something to be revered. That's something to be loved and cherished. This created order is not being pulled apart and, and won by war but it is something that is being brought together and is sustained with a certain um, amount of intentionality, creativity, care, and beauty. God created our universe to work together. Justo Gonzalez, one of the great, uh, I referenced him last week, he's probably my favorite church historian. Um, he picks up on the irony 
today of like more scientific philosophy that errs on the side of, of atheism um, and is the world that we, we live in today. What he talks about, which I think is, actually, is really com- fascinating and compelling, is he says, when you go into the ancient world and you have a perspective on the universe that everything comes about through this cosmic war of the gods, there's no impetus for inquiry of any time. There's no scientific impetus to, to ask bigger questions. So if you have rain in a season, it's because the rain god defeated the drought god. And that's just it. If you have drought, then it's because the drought god defeated the rain god, right? It takes a holistic, unified perspective on the planet, on the cosmos, for you to even have the curiosity as to how is that connected to that? Where does the rain come from? What is it connected to? And it is the Christian monotheistic view of the universe, that it is through the creative design of a singular God who pulls this all together and nurtures it, that that imaginative inquiry is birthed out of. That's our history. That's our story. And yet we find ourselves like the people of Babel, where our inquiry has led us to such progress, and we know more about the universe than we ever have, and we know how to build that tower taller. We know how energy works, so we can exploit the earth to produce it on demand. We know how all kinds of things work, and so we know how the, the growing of, su- of, of food works, so we can artificially create fertilizers that help us do it more efficient and And we do all of this in the name of progress and we're building our tower and we look down and we have a perspective on the earth unlike we've ever seen before. And yet, we are nowhere near the creator of the universe. And the inevitable end of that story of not surrendering to this idea that there, this We are existing as a byproduct of an intelligent being who formed us to work in conjunction with one another. The byproduct of that is continuing to build that that tower and our languages will be confused. What the heck do we do with this? What does this mean for us? One of my biggest passions is, uh, and life pursuits, honestly, one of my things that I'm trying to grow in. I grew up in Southern California where uh, we didn't know what recycling was. It was like not a thing, legitimately. I had a dumpster, like one that you pick up with a like in my front yard, and that's what everything went in, like the yard debris, the recycling, the oil from your car, whatever, just throw it in there, right? And It just gets, that's the world that I grew up in, right? It's a very disconnected way of viewing life and our spirituality. Consequently, my spirituality had nothing to do with this physical world. It's completely disconnected. You have your spiritual self and you have your physical self. 
And the goal of becoming a mature Christian is to work on your spiritual self, right? You can ignore the physical self. And yet the original command, the original calling of humanity in all of Scripture, as God forms humanity out of the dust, he gives them one, two commands. He says, fill the earth and take care of it. This is my creation. You caring for it will bring forth the food that you need to eat, which will sustain you and your family and your neighbor and generations to come. This is a part of your call and your, your life as somebody who is created in the image of God, in my image. This is a part of the whole creative order. Today, when you walked in, some of you probably saw that the entryway looked really interesting. It has plants and food everywhere. And you've heard us talk over the last several weeks or even months that we're going to be starting a church CSA. And some of you are like, that's really weird. Uh, that's, I don't know what to do with that. I don't garden. Um, and I think even some of us are like, you know, that is a really creative way to be a relevant church in inner southeast Portland. Good for you for being creative. My hope and prayer is that, it, that it's none of that. That I'm going to explain kind of what we're going to be doing with this CSA. My hope is that this is a core expression or a tangible way in which you and I together can work out our spirituality by becoming more connected with this universe that God placed us in and called us to cultivate and, to and take care of. And in the process, I believe that together we will become uh, a more whole family, a more whole people individually and collectively. This is what this is all about. All the starts that are in the, in the entryway there have been grown by people in our community, in greenhouses and different contexts. And there's some fruit, out, there's some actual vegetables out there to take. Those starts are for us as a community. They're for you to take home. Whoever's in this room, you don't even have to be a part of this community. If you're here, they're yours to take home. And there's not just starts out there. There's seeds out there as well. My hope and dream, our hope and dream uh, as leadership here, is that that entryway and our normal week would be overflowing with vegetation and fruit. A part of our rhythm as a life of the church here is we're going to continue to grow starts and we're going to continue to grow seeds, and they're going to be available to our entire community. You're never going to have to buy organic seeds or starts for your gardens ever again. Like, they're going to be here for you year-round. And we have people in this church who have studied and are studying what seasons of life to be planting different things to cultivate different fruits and the seeds and the starts will be appropriate to that time and to that place. It is then our collective responsibility to take those seeds and starts and to go back to our homes and to put them into the ground and to cultivate them. Some of you have an acre and you can clean out the whole thing. Some of you live in an apartment and you just have a little window. It doesn't matter. You take whatever your space can handle and whatever your life and your energy can 
tolerate at that time. And you go and you take that and you put it in the ground and you water it and you care for it and you rejoice as that brings fruit. And as that brings forth fruit, you can take those, that produce and you can feed your family with it. The only requirement is that you bring some of it back to us to share. And as a byproduct, one of two things is going to happen. We're going to show up to church and we're going to have two sorry tomatoes out there. And it will be abundantly clear how we are doing on our collective effort to grow vegetation, right? Or we will walk out there and the potential of the collective effort is to have a legitimate CSA where life and fruit and vegetables are produced for anybody who walks in this doors and we will have plenty to give to all. That's the goal and that's the hope of what this, how this rhythm is to work. To me, this serves as perhaps the most beautiful and practical metaphor for how the church is to function. We build church upon the models of our culture that prove to be successful. I know because I know you in this room that many of us come into this space with a very disenfranchised and frustrated view or experience with the church. And Theophilus has become your last-ditch effort to have that redeemed, right? And there's a common word that we associate with our bad experiences with the church. It's pretty much universal. It's called fake. We say, church, my struggle with church is that it's just fake. Well, if we look at our world of agriculture today, an effective way of growing produce is not by sharing the load. It's by taking one large plot of land, planting one crop in that whole plot of land, and throwing fertilizer all over it so it produces food. Meanwhile, it kills the soil, and yet we can stay out ahead of it and re-engineer new technologies to continue to, to grow new fruit. And we do it all out of the anxiety that if we don't, then people will go without. And it fuels us forward. And we as followers of Jesus, we live by a different rhythm. We live by a rhythm that says, actually, you take care of the earth that God gave to you, and it will bring forth life and fruit for you to enjoy in balance and harmony with one another. And this is our baby step as a church to begin to put that into practice and to experience something as a community together that deals with wholeness and shalom in the created order that God has put before us. We're not going to go the route of saying, hey, we're just going to develop a new technology to figure out how to feed everybody in this church, and we're going to build it on one or two people's backs. It's going to be a collective effort as our community. And my hope is that it becomes something that is just a core part of our, our life and our rhythm as a church. If you're like, dude, you have lost your rocker. Like, you are so weird and Southeast Portland hippie. Um, 
I'm not, I promise. Um, but let's have conversation. This is really good stuff. This is stuff that I'm so unbelievably passionate about and I think can, can so have tremendous impact on our community for a long time to come. We're going to come to the Lord's table together. And this table is the table that represents this God of unity of the universe came in the form of a human, Jesus, humbled himself and taught the world the real way in which the world functions through sacrifice, not through exploitation and war. And when we come to this table, we learn how to enter into that sacrifice and live our lives differently that communicate the power of the gospel, which is one of wholeness and, and uh, justice and harmony, and we get to experience that. So I encourage you to reflect on that as you come to the table. If you're serving community tonight, please come forward. All are welcome. There's gluten-free elements at each station, one in the back and one up front. Come to the table. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.